Let me share with you the message this morning that I, I'm really excited about. As I, I look at this last part of Matthew, after Jesus is resurrected, there's just a couple things, a couple stories. And, and this week I'm going to share, next week Peter Kapsner is going to share the, the way of the risen rabbi. So you want to be here for that. But what I want you to know is, about a couple years ago, kind of to set up this whole message, there's a, oh, it probably must have been maybe 10 years or so ago, there was a 60-minute show. And there was on it uh, this show where they would have these appliance repairmen come in and they were called to fix a fixed refrigerator. By fixed refrigerator, I, meant the, I mean this. They had taken the refrigerator and purposely unhooked one of the wires so that it wasn't working. And the whole purpose of this experiment that they were doing was to see if people had integrity, if they would come in with honesty and say, oh, it's just a wire and hook it up and everything would be fine. They had hidden cameras and then they went ahead and they called repairmen that would come to this place. They would go to the home. There were some that were full of integrity and they said, you know, it's just a little thing. And they, some just charged them a couple of dollars. Some charged them the service charge and a couple of dollars to fix it. There were some that said, you know, you need the whole new replacement of this part, and they would replace the part and then hook up the wire and then charge them hundreds of dollars. There were some that didn't even replace the part, just hooked up the wire, said they replaced the part, and charged them hundreds of dollars. Now, what I find is interesting is that, the, the, you know, how they come out with the cameras, with the, the microphone, and they say, well, you know, and the guy's like, well, what's going on? And they said, did you know that it was this and this? And he goes, well, no, it needed that part. And, and they said, well, we know it doesn't because, you know. The, and, and so some would just lie. And when they were lying, then they said, well, we can prove it to you. And the guy would go, like what? And then they would show the hidden, on the hidden camera what exactly they did. And there were a number of them who still continued to deny it and to seek to deceive them. And to live kind of in a sense in their little delusion of it needed to be fixed. What I think is interesting about that story is the account that we're going to look at today in Matthew 28, beginning of verse 11, as we go through that, is very similar in the same way. It would be like one of those news shows. Matthew records this account. He gives us, in a sense, almost a transcript of the account. Because more than likely, there were people who had become converted afterwards who shared this story. Nicodemus, we're told, was one who converted later. If you look at Acts chapter 6, verse 7, Luke, who writes this account, he's kind of the, the historian of the Gospels and writes the Acts of the Apostles. He says in verse 7, the word of God spread and the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. What we're going to find in just a moment is it said that the chief priests and others came together so they probably even had some who were giving, in a sense, the transcript. We'll show you the tape. Of this story. And so let's listen again to Matthew's account. And we're going to first begin with the one in chapter 27, verse 62 to 66, because you need to get the first part of it so that you can hear the second part that begins in, in verse 11. But what's important about the first part in 27, 62 through 66 is this occurred immediately after the crucifixion because the chief priests and the elders and those who were there, were concerned about Jesus possibly rising from the dead. Listen to verse 62. The next day, the one after the preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that, catch this, deceiver said, after three days I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. 
And catch this, this last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate said. Go make the tomb as secure as you know how. And so they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. Now, as you go on to chapter 28 in those first few verses, which we looked at on Resurrection Sunday morning, you have this account of the women going to the tomb at dawn. There is an earthquake. The earthquake takes the stone, this two-ton stone, flips it out of the groove that it's in. Sitting on its side, there's an angel who is now upon it. And as they come, they see this angel, and they say that his clothes was like lightning. They were as white as snow. And these are the words, quote, in Matthew, the guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. Now listen to verse 11 of Matthew 28. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to their chief priests. Now catch it, some of the guards. So there was a pretty good group of guards. Some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. Verse 12, when the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, you are to say his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this report gets to the governor, we'll satisfy him, keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers, they took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. It's interesting, verse 15, how it ends. These lies and rumors seem to continue to exist till the day that Matthew is actually penning this gospel, which is some 30 years, many think, in the early 60s. There's different dates on it, but the one that makes the most sense is around the early 60s, some 30 years after Jesus had resurrected. This rumor was still being spread. We even know that Justin Martyr, one of the early church fathers, who lived around 100 to 160, somewhere in that period, it says that he wrote a dialogue, and they used to number their, their writings like Dialogue 1, 2, 3, 4. Well, Dialogue 108 in that work, sometime written around probably 140 A.D., says that these lies and rumors continued to spread among the Jews well into the second century. Throughout history, there have been all kinds of theories developed and raised to disprove the fact of the resurrection. And I could go through a whole bunch of them and I could share with you the theory and then I could share with you the the apology or the defense against it that would say, here's the truth of the resurrection. But I'm not going to go through all those because in reality, this is probably the first theory that was ever developed. It was the first one that was used to explain the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. And so Matthew, because it was current in his day and probably weren't many others in any at all, because I think he would have, if it was among the Jews, he would have written about those because he wanted to defend the fact that this king who died also rose again. And so at this point around 60 A.D., there's probably just two stories that are going around. Jesus either rose from the dead or Jesus's body was stolen. So Matthew writes this in his account. Now, there's all kinds of reasons why you could say this theory doesn't make a lot of sense. It doesn't hold a lot of water. It may sound interesting. It may be that some believed it. But when you think about it, you have to look at the fact that as we read in Scripture, they took all the precautions they could. Every necessary precaution was made. They were afraid, they said, go get a guard. We need it till the third day. We want you to put on this heavy stone that's been placed in front of it, which Joseph of Arimathea wanted there because he didn't want this body, this reverent man, his body touched. And they also then put this seal, which by the breaking of it would mean the death of anyone who would break it. And they put a guard there, a pretty large guard, in order to keep people from doing anything with it. 
And then the other side of it, you have to look at the disciples. The disciples were so distraught, they were so disturbed, that there was no way because they ran away, they deserted, they fled, because they knew that in history, in their recent history, these would-be messiahs would come along, and not only would the would-be messiah be put on the cross, but in Galilee, where many of them were raised, they had 30 people put on the cross, all the followers with them. So there's no way they wanted to be close to Jesus. And in fact, you can see how distraught they were because you just look at the life of Judas. Judas goes ahead and betrays Jesus. And the theory could be he betrayed Jesus in order to force Jesus' hand become the political ruler he was supposed to be. He got 30 pieces of silver in the process of doing it. And then when he saw that Jesus didn't become who he was, but actually was crucified, he was so distraught, so in despair that he went and he hung himself. But tell people the disciples were so bold, they went and they got the body and stole it. And at face value, if you read through this story, it seems absurd. Don Carson writes in his commentary, it would be very difficult to believe that the soldiers of Pilate would admit to falling asleep, as they say in verse 13. That would for them be tantamount to suicide. If it was temple police, not just the Roman guard, but they said, you know, when he said, go get a guard, he said, go get your own guard. If they were the temple police, could more easily be bribed, even though it took a large sum of money, verse 12, and could more easily be protected from Pilate's anger because they weren't his own direct soldiers. There's theories on whether it was Pilate's soldiers or whether the temple guard. But he goes on and he says the utter absurdity of the stolen body just reveals, in a sense, how desperate the chief priests are to get another story out. Carson continues, the story they concoct shows how desperate they are for an explanation. For if the guards were asleep, they could not know of the alleged theft. Right? And they must have been really sound asleep when they were moving the stone. And if one of them awoke, just one, why wasn't the alarm sounded and the disciples arrested? See, molesting graves, says Carson, was a serious offense in the ancient world, subject at times to the death penalty. So not only are they molesting a grave, they were a follower of Christ. They were as good as dead. He continues, it is equally improbable that the timid and fearful disciples could have mustered up the courage to open Jesus' tomb, run the risk of capital indictment, and catch this, or that the Jewish authorities would have failed to persecute the disciples if they possessed a scrap of evidence pointing to their guilt. Hey, just get a few of those disciples, put them on trial. Never happened. And this theory, along with other theories, many of them developed much later in order to prove the resurrection didn't occur. In my mind, it takes a lot more faith to try and prove these different theories and to make them stand than it does to just take what seems to be at face value the fact that there is a God who loves us so much that he is a personal being who has the ability to enter in and intervene in history, did so by bringing his son because he loved us so much so that he would pay for our sins on a cross. And this God who loved his righteous son so much would have the strength and power and would allow for his son to have the strength and power himself to raise from the dead. You got to make a choice. Both accounts require faith. But I think Matthew seeks to give the truth and ask us, the reader, basically to use our common sense. 
take a step of faith and just use your common sense. I'm reminded of a college student who came home and he was visiting his grandmother when he came home. It was around spring break time. And um, he had been in university, had been in religious studies class, and they had been studying specifically in the secular university about the resurrection of Christ. And he said, Grandma, you know, I want to share with you, my professor has some really interesting teachings about the resurrection of Jesus, things that I hadn't heard before. And um, there's just a number of theories, but one of the theories my professor shares, which is my professor's favorite, um, is really interesting. It's called the swoon theory. And she, Grandma, wasn't too up on any of these theories. So, so honey, what's the theory? What's that about? And grandson said, well, you know, Jesus, according to the New Testament, actually died earlier than most people when they're crucified, which is true. And so when they put Jesus in the tomb, according to this theory, he wasn't really quite dead at that point. And as he was put into this tomb, he was actually put into a swoon state where he was sleeping. And as he lay in the grave in the coolness of the tomb with the spices and other things, it caused him to recover his consciousness. And when he recovered his consciousness, he got up, regained his strength, and he pushed the stone and he fled. Grandma looks at him and goes, that's the craziest idea I've ever heard. She goes, you go back, tell your professor to get flogged 49 times, carry a heavy wooden cross to the crucifixion site, have his hands nailed to a wooden beam, have a spear thrust into his side, have him be placed in a cold, dark rock tomb with a two-ton stone put in front of it, blocking its entrance, then have it sealed and have a guard standing watch, and let's see if he can wake from his swoon and get away. I just think, son, you need to go back and find a teacher who has some common sense. Or get your money back. I think grandma was just saying, you look at the facts, they just don't add up. In a sense, I think that's what Matthew's doing here. He basically is saying, as he writes this whole gospel, which you have to look at, you have to take the ministry and character of Christ, take the continued growing opposition of these religious leaders, their lies to condemn Jesus, their character throughout his life, take into account all that they tried to do to keep Jesus in the grave, and then you have to ask yourself, who are you going to believe? What makes, as Grandma said, the most sense? What I want to do at this point is kind of just take this story here and begin to apply it to us in our real lives. Because this story is all about lies. I want to share some implications about what it means to live in the truth rather than the lie. Because every day we all make choices and every day we have the opportunity to live in a lie or to live in the truth. And if you look at this story, it's a great example for us to understand that. Because we have to, just like these disciples and people, choose one or the other. And what I want you to note is, is how the lie works. How it works in your life, how it works in my life. Lies are things that is the implications is when they begin small. The other thing I want to share with you is that lie needs friends. Another thing you'll find in here is that lie needs a bribe. It requires it. There's a bribe that's often offered. And the last is that when it comes to the very end, when it comes to the end of the days, the lie will always be exposed. So the first thing I just want to share with you is you look at how lies work. And as you see how it was working here in this very situation in Matthew, as you find out, it begins small. Usually little ones that grow into larger ones. Usually in smaller places in our life. Not everyone lives this kind of diluted life where your whole life is a lie, but often you can live in areas of your life that is a lie. The life of a liar has this kind of process to it. 
It often begins with denial. It's the very first stage of it. You have to just live in denial. And then after you deny it, you then begin to find yourself deceived and you invite others to live in that deception so that in the end you're all living in delusion. You're just deluded. Happens all the time with people. The story of these religious leaders, they deny the miracles, they deny the prophecies, they deny the character of Jesus. They have all these truths in front of them, but they deny them. And eventually they deny them to the point that they are deceived and they deceive themselves before what they see. And not only do they deceive themselves, they invite the whole religious community and the whole community of people of Israel to follow into this deception so that all of them would be deluded and they would stand and they say to the one who would come to them, crucify him. What I find is interesting is that they were so deluded, according to Matthew 27, 63, remember, that they called this one Jesus the deceiver. They were so deluded that in 27, 64, they say Jesus' last deception will be worse than his first. In denial, when you're deceived and then you finally move into this deluded state, they call Jesus. We tend to do this. We project the lie onto other people. They call Jesus, who is the truth. The deceiver. They call Jesus the one who is anointed by God as one who has a bunch of demons. That's what happens when you're in delusion. The, the one who says, I am the way, they come along and say he's a deceiver. And that's what happens when delusion occurs. Look at, if you would, First John chapter 1, verses 5 through 10, because I think it's an interesting passage. We could spend the whole time on this passage alone. It's a whole other message in itself. But I just want to share with you what happens in First John. It says in verse 5, this is the message John is writing, who is there with Jesus, that we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light in him, there is no darkness at all. There's light and darkness. If we claim to have fellowship, we claim to be in the light with him, yet we walk in darkness, we are sinning in a sense, we are separated from, we lie and do not live out the truth, which is denial. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, the idea is that we are in fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus' Son purifies us from all sin. Now look at the next one. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth isn't in us, which is deception. But here's the opposite. If we confess our sins, we understand our sinful and that He is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins, He will also purify us from all unrighteousness. Now, if you look at the next line in verse 10, if we claim we have not sinned, never have I sinned. Oh, what do you mean? There's no sin in me. I may do a few bad things. I'm not, if we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar. And his word is not in us. That's delusion. Happens in our lives. It happens with sin all the time in our lives. In a place that's not in fellowship with God, we look at it and we deny it. Then we deceive ourselves and we help deceive others with us. And then we live in the delusion of what we know isn't true. This is how the lie works. It begins small. In, uh, in, in the book Brothers Karamazov, you remember Fyodor Dostoevsky? He says, above all, don't lie to yourself. The man who lies to himself and listens to his own lies comes to a point that he cannot distinguish the truth within him or around him and so loses all respect for himself and for others. And then having no respect, he ceases to love. And then the modern-day theologian Lady Gaga <laughs> says, I'm telling you a lie in a vicious effort that you will repeat my lie over and over until it becomes true. Listen to Adolf Hitler. 
If you tell a big enough lie and tell it frequently enough, it will be believed. Called denial, deception, till you're finally as deluded as an Adolf Hitler. Even little lies, folks, are a big deal. They lead to bigger lies. These chief priests, they didn't get to bribing some soldiers with a huge amount of money overnight. It happened when the first time they saw Jesus, they were convicted. And instead of being convicted of their sin, they denied it. And then they moved to a place when they were convicted, they saw miracles and they had to say he's a deceiver. And eventually they lived this delusion and they had to do everything they could to have the truth that was out there be called a lie so that they could continue to live in their own lie. And we do it all the time in our lives. We do it with our health. I do it with my weight. You know, just a few chocolates, not a problem. We do it with our finances. You know, I just borrow a bit of money from my credit and it doesn't really matter. We do it in relationships. It always starts out small. You know, I'm going to work late today and then you know the person you're working late with, you're getting some emotional connection with and you lie to yourself. You know what? No one, no one wakes up one day and goes, you know, today I think I'm going to have an affair. It always begins with a little denial that comes to deception because you allow yourself to be deceived and you bring others into it and then you're deluded. We all become little Hitlers in little areas of our life. And those little Hitlers mess up things. They kill things and they destroy relationships and they destroy us and they destroy you. They destroy our culture. Think about it. That's how the lie works. Not only does the lie work small, it needs friends. You've got to really think about this for a second. Lies need friends. Like oxygen needs fire. Our fire needs oxygen. So the fire to stay alive needs that. In the same way, every lie needs co-conspirators. Every lie needs others. It needs a family system. It needs a community of people. It needs a business of people. It needs a church of people. It needs friends. Whether they're silent or vocal, it doesn't matter. Because if you're silent and the lie goes along, it continues to spread. If you're vocal and you spread it, it doesn't matter. It still requires friends. It doesn't matter if it's gossip or a rumor or slander or boasting or a false report. Someone needs to pass it on or someone needs to not step up and say that's a lie. The chief priests and the elders, they needed the soldiers. According to this chapter in Matthew 28, verse 12, they devised the plan but needed the soldiers to carry it out. They couldn't have done it without the soldiers. The co-conspirators always get some kind of payment. We're going to look at that in a moment. Any individual, any family, any community, any business that lives in the lie needs others to lie with them. They need the help of others. They need people to collaborate with the lie. In the news this week, some of you are aware of this woman who had her husband murder finally being tried and turned in for some murders he's committed. At least they're being looked at. She actually married a man, and after they got married some ten years ago, I don't remember how many years, she was told by him that he had actually killed someone, and she just kept it quiet. She was kept it quiet out of fear. She lived with this guy for some ten years or so, keeping the secret, the lie. 
She was just silent about it. She lived in fear, in the terror of abuse, and it catches us. It took their eight-year-old daughter, I guess she's about eight, who was being beaten by her dad, this woman's murderer husband. It took her, as she was being beaten, somehow had the opportunity to escape from his beating. This little eight-year-old ran to her neighbor, called 9-11, to finally stop the lie. You know, what keeps an unhealthy system ill is that people participate in the sickness. And whether a family, a business, a team, a church, the dysfunction continues until one or usually more stand up and say, enough. We're not going to live in this lie anymore. Someone is brave enough to, to, to stand against the silence like in Penn State with a Jerry Sandusky. Someone is brave enough or something gets leaked so that those New Orleans Saints who were beating up on our quarterback in that playoff game, I'm still mad about it, gets exposed. And we look at those things and we say they're out there, but they're in us. They're in us as a community. And one of the things we're going to go after that I want to go after, and I invite you with me, is the truth in our lives so radically, so whatever is needed so that we can say, God, enough. We want you, your spirit. We want your fullness. We want all that you can have for us because we do not want any part of the lie and do not want to live with the father of lies. And I just ask you to invite and I invite you to say, I want that in my life. I want that in my family. Because lies need friends. And I ask you to think about it. Am I playing a, as a, a part of propagating a lie? Am I some co-conspirator? Am I a friend even silently to a lie? And ask, your God, what am I supposed to do about that? Not only do lies um, start small and they need friends, but they, they also they require a bribe. Those soldiers needed some kind of payment. Lies are always temporary payoffs. They're quick fixes. They're temporary gains. They never will ever, though, fully satisfy your heart's longing. They will give you something now for the moment. And they continue to lead you into more deception so you're so fully deluded that sometimes the truth can't even break in. And liars will come and fill you with empty promises because what they want is to stay deluded. And they'll give you empty promises. I'll change. I'll do this. I'll do that. I'll do all these different things. They're all talk, talk, talk until the consequence hits them in the face where they have to stop. Which is maybe an eight-year-old little girl calling on a phone 9-11 saying, enough. Because there's a payment. There's a reason why this wife stayed with a husband who was abusing her. There's a reason why we live with the lies as friends. It's because we're getting bribed. You and I are getting some kind of payment. We're getting either some kind of security out of it. Or we're in a situation where we know if we were to stand up, we'd lose some income. We may never get the promotion. It may be that in this situation where there's a lie that's going on that you're feeling convicted about that you need to stand up against. It's the very fact that it'll be embarrassment to your whole family. When Teen Challenge was here last Sunday, for me, I felt the Lord saying at the end of that service, I, I 
Kevin courageously get up and just ask people to stand who are somewhat connected to this with their family because I knew how embarrassing that could be for some. But I was amazed at how many people transparently stood up and said, you know what? I know I need God to work in this situation. And that's the kind of community that we're called to be. That's what God is calling you. If you're kind of beginning to say, what is this about? It's about people who will come together, who will say we don't want the lies, whether they're small or not. We don't want to be a friend of the lie. And the other thing is we're not going to take the bribe anymore. Whatever it is that's tempting you, that's appealing you, that this person or this lie or this empty promise is pulling you towards, you're going to say, no, I don't want it. The soldiers were offered a wad of cash. When the chief priests had met with the elders, they devised a plan. They knew they needed co-conspirators, they needed friends, and they also knew they needed a bribe. So they gave the soldiers, it says, a large sum of money. And that's important to know. The word is arguria in Greek, which literally means silver. You see, they didn't say a large sum of money to when they paid off Judas. That was 30 pieces of silver. So a large sum of money must have meant a lot. There were probably at least six soldiers around that post. Some of them went to him. And my guess is that some of them, for all of them, were given possibly maybe not 30, but even 50 pieces of silver. Let's just say it's 50. That's 300 pieces of silver out of the temple treasury in order to propagate a lie in a system so that you could remain in the old covenant so these people could stay in control and all these people would be friends to this lie and never enter the new covenant, which is the promise of God as Holy Spirit. It is no different today in our own lives. We have the promise of God. We live in these old promises. It can be empty promises. And God, by His Holy Spirit, begins to call us. And He's calling out of us the courage to step into faith and to trust Him and to say, God, I want to live by the power of Your Spirit and by the presence of God. Now catch this. The soldiers were looking for personal prosperity and to be protected from Pilate. And living in the truth always forces you to trust God, His provision, His protection, and His security. Matthew makes an incredible contrast here. We'll see it when you get to Matthew 28, 16-20 next week. But the chief priests used bribe money to commission the soldiers to spread lies. Catch this. While the resurrected Jesus uses merely the promise of His presence to commission his followers to spread the truth. That's a powerful statement. That means whenever you're faced with a lie and the, and the temporary gain and promises of a lie, you have the choice to take that and to live in the lie, or you have the choice to courageously step out and say, guess what, God? I'm scared to death right now. I'm going to need you to provide. I'm going to need for you to come through. I'm going to need for your promise to be more than just... Some temporary thing. I need you. I need the embrace. I'm running to your arms like we sang so that I can feel the embrace of your presence. Jesus stands to every one of his followers and says, choose me and you'll know me. What you lose when you choose to stay in the lie is the power and presence of God. Whether it's in your family system, whether it's your business, whether it's in your personal life, whether it's in this church. That's the cost. And the last thing I'm going to share with you is that in the end, the lie will be exposed. Some of you have chosen to stand in that very 
what I call non-anxious place where you're in the presence and peace of God. You're not getting any real payoff right now. You're just standing in faith and there's a lie and it's coming against you and you don't look good. It's really hard to stand in that place. But here's the incredible truth of God. Someday it will be known. Someday it will be revealed. The truth always prevails. I had someone send me this, and I'm going to ask Lindsay in just a moment to come up and just end with a story here. But I had someone send me these words, which were really helpful. They were words of like God speaking to me as a servant and to you as a servant. So this is God. Take it to you. If you're in this place and you're, you're standing on the promise of God's presence, you may not even feel his presence right now, but you know that this lie is being spread or these are being done and you want to react, you want to fight, you want to do these things, but God is saying no unrighteous act is unseen by me, my servant. You never need to give in to the temptation to conquer evil by responding with evil. The enemy of your soul wants you to give in to your anger, to devise, to scheme, to do whatever you can to win. You will lose your integrity any time you attempt to triumph over evil with evil. The only way to deal with your enemies and protect yourself in the heat of the battle is to guard your heart and pray for your enemies so that you don't become like them. Revenge only brings pain. My way, says Jesus, brings healing to a world filled with heartache and pain. And I want you to win by loving others most when they deserve it least. Because that's the very way I've loved you. I've asked Lindsay to come and close. Lindsay, as you know, has worked with our kids' ministry for five years, grew up in the church here. We sat down and talked about things that she could share, and we said, you know what, with this message, why don't you just share one of these things that have been in your heart? And, and I'm so thrilled that you came there one day and said, I'd like to share something. So thank you for doing that. You've got to grab the mic and let them have it. <laughs> Good morning. First hour, I was shaking, um, almost crying before I started speaking. And second hour, I am just at peace. I feel covered in prayer, and I thank you for that. Um, so we have a little bit of a different experience than the first hour. And the truth is that I'm nervous to talk about what I want to speak to you about. Um, but I'm convicted that it is what I'm supposed to do. Um, how this all happened is only from God. I have believed a lie for a long time that as a single person I have less value or that my primary goal should be to find a husband. This problem is not um, just within this church body, just with me, but within um, the whole church culture. Singles are not half of a person waiting to find someone to bring them happiness, joy, or fulfillment. We have different struggles, but some similar. When thinking through a list of struggles that I have as a single person and speaking with other single friends of mine, we came up with loneliness, struggles with intimacy, and contentment, all things that I have heard struggles of married people. We do not need or desire your pity, but we do value your love and compassion. Some people are called to this life, and if we feel called by God to remain single, and the response of the church is, when are you getting married? Where's your husband? How come? That is not encouraging um, God's plan. I started this job um, in many ways because of a breakup of my own. I um, was in a relationship for four years. It ended. I was in turmoil um, and had uh, needed a job. Since then, I've dated a lot. 
a whole lot. And if you may or may not remember or be experiencing, dating is not always very pleasant. There's lots of trauma. Um, it's hard on your ego. There's ridiculous things and great things. Um, but it's really difficult. Throughout this job, I've had people say things to me like, why are you single? You're so cute. Why are you single? You're so fun. And in parallel with my dating life, um, if I had a relationship that ended for whatever reason, it just affirmed in me that maybe I'm not cute enough or not fun enough or too fun. And it confirmed my weaknesses and my fears. Now I've been dating a man for a really long time, and I love him and would marry him tomorrow. And the truth of it is, he has not arrived at that conclusion. And every time I come to church, I have at least eight people asking me, when are you getting married? What's the holdup? And it uh, confirms my deepest fear that maybe I won't. Maybe he won't come to that conclusion. What's wrong with me that he won't? I don't think this applies to just singles. I think that we oftentimes say things off the cuff in order to connect with people that we don't intend. No one's intention in asking me that is to hurt my feelings. I envision that when I, if and when I do get married, hopefully, um, the next question will be, when are you having children? It's true. It will happen. And my fear with that is, what if I don't want children? Or what if I desperately do and I'm unable to do so for whatever reason? What message is this church, or any church, communicating to me if that's the question they ask me? I have a friend who came and she has a nose piercing. And in the foyer, someone came up to her and said, Oh, you have your nose pierced. That must have hurt. And that was her only experience with anyone in the church foyer. This is not representing Christ to those who need to hear it. And that's just not new people. That's old people as well. I've heard stories about comments about weight, my own in particular, I've heard comments about height, about employment, about marital status, about the age of childbearing, about the number of children, about homeschooling or not homeschooling, about the style of dress, how tight your pants are, how your arms are showing, all sorts of absurd things that are so not critical to the message of Christ's love. It is our job as Christians to represent Christ, his love and character. And I know that these questions are not intended for ill will. So I would encourage you that if you don't know someone well enough to ask them if that was offensive and to trust their response to be truthful, perhaps maybe you don't share those thoughts or comments. There are other ways to connect. Um, I think the most connected I've ever felt with people and why I'm so calm this hour is due to prayer. I feel so covered in prayer, and I know that there are people in this body praying for my husband, praying for my peace in that, praying for my contentment. We all have different journeys that God lays before us. This is mine. I am envious at times of those who marry their high school sweetheart, and sometimes not. Um, But it is not our job to be jealous of one another. The church church needs to be a safe place for people to come and seek him, regardless of all of these things. When I was preparing for this message, and really, really not wanting to, I was reminded of a time when I was wrestling with God in my struggleness for singlehood. And I asked God, why am I still single? I'm cute, I'm fun, I love you, what's the deal? Why can't I have what I want? And he said, because you have a voice. And I would encourage you and challenge you to not let my voice die with this message, but challenge you to spur one another on towards love and good deeds. I'm totally quoting scripture early. In Hebrews 10:24, it says, And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another all the more as you see the day approaching. 
I'll be taking a brief hiatus from Wayzata to Free just to let everything settle, um, but I will inevitably be back. This place is in me. I have been here since before I was born, a glimmer in my mother's eye, if you will, and I am so grateful to all of you for shaping me into the woman I have become. And even this challenge has helped shine the light that it is God's truth, and he is the sole place where I can have to get my value. But I do encourage you to think before you speak um, and wonder, what would that mean? Or what are the other implications? I think that's it. I just appreciate you guys. I love you. And I'll miss you. I'm so proud of Lin- Lindsay because just that, that was raw and out there and vulnerable. There's my room. Yeah, <laughs> sure. And, um, and when you said that I hate us, it's because um, as Brittany comes in, you're just going to give some space for a change in leadership. But we're so grateful for the ministry. It's that kind of stuff that Lindsay brings even to our staff. It's when we as a staff to have that kind of honesty with one another. We are so grateful for um, the gift you bring to us. And thank you for that. I'm going to ask you to stand and uh, ask the prayer team if they'd come forward. If you'd like prayer, uh, prayer is an opportunity to get vulnerable and to say, I need God in an area of my life. So if the prayer team, if you'd come forward before I pray, just and then people at the end, if you want prayer, you can come forward for that. Uh, let's pray. Father, we are so grateful. We desire more than anything to be transparent before you. And then to do so in a responsible way with one another, where you, Lord Jesus, can have the fullness of who we are. I know, God, even in Lindsay's uh, story, there are people here who feel their own pain right now before you. And you are the one, the only one. And when those kind of things occur, that as we go into your embrace, we find that love and security from you. But we also, as people, want to do that more and more for others. So help us do that, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.